Hi everyone. Just a reminder that this show is not legal advice, trading advice, financial advice, or personal advice. Enjoy the show and thank you very much. Everyone, I am super excited to let you all know that Crypto 101's Chinese Guide to Cryptocurrency is now available for sale. You could pick it up at Amazon, Barnes and Noble, iTunes, or pick up a paperback with Bitcoin, Ethereum, or Litecoin. Pick it up for your friends, your family, your kids, or gift it to anyone for the holidays. Yo, yo, welcome to Crypto 101, the average consumer's guide to cryptocurrency. This is Matthew Aaron. And today we have on Mr. David Gerard, who is the author of Attack of the 50-Foot Blockchain. And I'm excited for this episode because usually everybody who comes on the show is all about Bitcoin, all about cryptocurrency, all about blockchain, all about investing, Lambos, Moon, positive, happy thoughts, optimism, and enough is enough. I am excited to have somebody else that says, there's no Lambos, there's no Moon, no Bitcoin, no blockchain, and is a very harsh critic on the space. So I'm very excited to have David on. So what we're going to do is we're going to go through chapter by chapter and summarize each chapter of his book, and he's going to give his personal opinions and thoughts on each chapter that pertains to the market, and I'm going to engage him as well. But before we get into that conversation, please go to Crypto101podcast.com, find our social medias, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, pick up Crypto101's Chinese Guide to Cryptocurrency, send us an email, subscribe to us on iTunes, leave us a comment and a rating, and also think about becoming a Patreon. If you are a Patreon, please don't forget to send us an email so we can get you out a book if you've been a Patreon for six months or more. And I also want to give a very special shout out to Mr. Ray Redacted for introducing David and myself. Follow Ray on Twitter for all things security. His Twitter handle is in the description. Now, without further ado, here's David and the attack of the 50-foot blockchain. Mr. David Gerard, author of Attack of the 50-Foot Blockchain. Welcome to Crypto 101, sir. Good morning. Good morning, sir. <laughs> well, it's afternoon over here. It's good morning for you. You are in London, correct? I am indeed. Yeah, you're currently in Taiwan. I am currently in Taiwan, so it's 4 p.m. over here, 9 a.m. over there. Please, before we go into talking about your book, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Okay, so now I find myself with this second job as a uh, finance journalist doing crypto and blockchains. But before that, back in Australia, I was a music journalist in the 80s and 90s. I moved into IT because it pays hugely better. So became a system administrator. Though I keep up the music journalism thing, I have a website, rocknerd.co.uk. Oh, cool. Which is basically, a, it's a blog. It's a fanzine, you know. I got into the Bitcoin thing. I heard about it in like late 2010 when WikiLeaks got cut off from MasterCard, Visa and PayPal. And I went, they can't do that. They can do that. Someone mentioned, oh, they could use Bitcoin instead. I didn't find out two years later that Satoshi Nakamoto had said, no, no, don't do it. Bitcoin's too small. You know. Hmm. So that got it on my radar. And of course, I know a lot of geeks. So it's a sort of subject of nerd interest. And then I looked at the people and the phenomenon and went, ah, enthusiastic nerds who won't shut up about their favorite thing. Yeah, I know those people. So um, I ended up writing, starting the Rational Wiki article on Bitcoin, which is a small skeptical wiki. I followed it for a little while. And then in about 2014, I got onto Reddit Buttcoin, which is a heartwarming place full of <laughs> lovely people. It is also, and this is really disconcerting, it's one of the few places on Reddit where you can actually talk about cryptos without being covered in company shills and weird cultists, which means we get a lot of pro-crypto people in there. So I was chatting with my friend Elizabeth Sandifer. I said, I need some money. She said, write a book, because she makes a chunk of her living from self-publishing. Right on. Um, I said, what will it be about? She said, uh, why Bitcoin is stupid. Make it 15,000 words, <laughs> take about a week, don't work too hard. So nine months later and 55,000 words and 400-odd footnotes, I had a book. <laughs> I started in late 2016 when nobody cared, right? Right. Bitcoin was this thing that had happened a couple of years ago. Mm -hmm. The enthusiasts were still enthusiastic, but the world didn't care. It was a fad that had passed. So I was sort of writing the mop-up of a fad. Then in April 2017, the bubble started. 
Mm. And by May, it was in full swing. And um, my wife and I chatting to a friend of hers who um, is like a normal suburban person. And she said, I've heard about Bitcoin a lot. And we went, no, because I think that for retail investors, holy crap, cryptos are just mostly going to be bad news. They're super, super risky as investments. So I'd suddenly had a moral force to my book, which was that a lot of mum and dad investors were going to get totally skinned. Mm -hmm. So I sort of rewrote going for a very, very, very mainstream audience because previously I'd been thinking in terms of like snide tickies who read Buckcoin. (laughs) And so it came out in July. It basically caught the wave. So there are literally three serious skeptics books about Bitcoin and cryptocurrency and blockchains. Those are Bitcoin by Jeffrey Robinson. Um, there's David Columbia's book, The Politics of Bitcoin. And there's my book. So I caught a wave. And I, if I'd sold 100 or 200 copies, I would have thought that was a real success. So currently, it's like somewhere around 8,500 sales. Oh, nice. And my current problem is that it's been a year. Sales have slowed down, obviously. And I need to run another one. So in between pumping out blog posts, I have to like, get some actual book text down and it turns out to be harder than it looks writing to book quality where everyone will nitpick your stuff which is why it's got 400 footnotes because i knew i was up against enough crap <laughs> well crypto 101 has our book coming out in i think I five, five days so i am looking forward to being critiqued and ran over the coals and but hopefully ah. i made it general enough to make everybody happy i shall have a look I hope you do, sir. So, I mean, you are experienced. You give the noob um, some uh, some seasoned advice. I do what I can. But I mean, with the book, it's like my original audience was snide butt coiners. And then I went into trying to reach out to the retail investor mums and dads. And then I discovered my actual audience was business and finance people. Hmm. It turns out they're really interested and they want to know all about how blockchains will enhance their business and organizations because that's what the promise is. And they want to know all about this um, incredibly volatile asset because, you know, professional traders, they love volatility. Mm-hmm. They can make money going up and down as long as it's volatile. So they're trying to get their head around this asset, what its constraints are. So while I'm quite strong on, and I advocate this all the time, that this stuff shouldn't be pushed to retail investors, or if it is, it should be regulated at least as much as gambling is. I would like to stop all advertising in the UK of crypto as an investment to normal public because those ads are just bad wrong they'll just skin people and there's precedent for that i wouldn't ban buying it i don't i wouldn't do that and i don't think you could but i also wouldn't um it's a tricky one because it's you know the moral angle of protecting people versus personal freedoms and i'm a bit torn on that one myself right professional traders basically they're big boys and girls and they can lose their money if they want Exactly, exactly. So looks like you came out with a little bit of good luck hitting it in July. Caught the wave, yep. caught the 2017 $20,000 Bitcoin, and that must have been just gravy for you. But what I want to do right now is I want to get into the book a little bit. I want to go through these chapters because yep. I, you sent me the book. I read the book. I, I wanted to hate the book. I wanted to, to argue with you and debate you, but I, I actually walked away from this book mostly agreeing with you. And I want to, <laughs> I wasn't expecting that. And I'm a little disappointed in myself, honestly. Ah. <laughs> I mean, people can disagree with me on the details, but I think I back up my claims at least. So if I'm wrong, I'm wrong with information. <laughs> you know, they, they said something about Bill Clinton when he was a president. His opinions change depending on what book he read. And I was thinking when I was reading this book, I was around chapter five or six, I was going, am I doing a Bill Clinton right now? Do I, am <laughs> I, am I agreeing with this guy? But what I want to do is I want to go through chapter by chapter, and I want to pull out some highlights and some quotes that I I highlighted from my reading of the book, and I want you to explain your idea behind that, your personal feelings, your personal ideology. You don't have to tell us about what's in the book or back up your claims or even, you know, tell us about your research. I want to know your feelings. And so if you would, let's start with chapter one. And the first thing I I pulled out with chapter one, chapter one, what is Bitcoin? Question mark. Bitcoin is... And blockchains are not a technology story, but a psychology story. Can you explain that, sir? Yeah, it's like the phenomenon isn't a technology. The technology is sort of, it's sort of the MacGuffin. You know, it's an object that you put in to drive a plot. But it's all about the way that people interact with it, the promises of Bitcoin. 
there's a lot of ideology behind Bitcoin, as I said, but for a lot of people, the psychology is actually number go up. They think, this is my chance, this is my ticket. They get over-enthusiastic and start repeating catchphrases in the hope that magic will happen. And the blockchain promises marketing to business are literally those Bitcoin promises with the buzzword change the blockchain. Mm-hmm. It's sort of the psychology of people who think you can get rich for free. Mm-hmm. And that was what caught my interest about Bitcoin, that it, there was this promise that was being made quite early. This will go up, you'll get rich, and it's magic internet money, and haha, only serious sort of claims like that, you know. And there's no such thing as a get-rich-quick scheme. There's, I mean, you might gamble and won, good luck, but um, there's never one weird trick, you know? Basically, there is no such thing as free money. You've got to be both good and lucky, you know? If you assume that technology isn't actually magic and that magic doesn't happen, then you can try to work out what's actually going on here. The title of this chapter was, What is Bitcoin? You are a believer in the technology, in the cryptography, but you don't like any of the finance that goes into it. Is that correct? Something like that. I mean, the cryptography works, you know. it's. Um, I think proof-of-work mining is like, it's a really inelegant kludge but it was the one thing they needed to actually make the sort of decentralization trick work to some extent. Proof-of-work mining is bad and wasteful, I consider, and I think that late 2013, early 2014, it mostly re-centralized. And Mm. by 2014, we had the Bitcoin apocalypse. We had a pool with 51% Mm. ghash, and they promptly broke up the pool. Mm-hmm. They didn't want to spook their users. They didn't want to break the system because it was a living. But then, you know, trust has come back into it. You trust that they will not tip the cart over. And now we have a thing where Bitmain owns a chunk of mining split up into pools, but they own a substantial chunk of the actual mining and they make most of the mining chips. It's really pretty re-centralized, and that was going to happen because decentralization is hard and it's inefficient. Right. And we're talking about a system that's set up with economic incentives, and capitalism's incentive is make stuff more financially efficient and never mind redundancy or decentralization. So you, it's really, really good at optimizing out all inefficiency financially. So you end up with things re-centralizing because the bigger you are, the more efficient you're mining and the more money you'll make. So the natural tendency will be to re-centralize. And that's, and that's what we saw. And that leads us into chapter two, the Bitcoin ideology, anarcho-capitalism. Quote, e-gold was a digital currency backed by gold founded in 1996. It was perceived as anonymous. Next quote, old ideologies came back when they feel a present desire. Can you touch on those quotes? Right. As I said in chapter one, it's a reasonable thing to want digital cash. You know, it'd obviously be useful. We have the internet now. But how do you do that? People tried this throughout the 80s and 90s. There were the early pre-Bitcoin experiments, David Chaum's work on blind signatures. His system was rejected by the really ardent cypherpunk ANCAPs because it eventually had a central system that had any control. But they were sort of trying to go for the goal there. So... When you have a particular framework and a way that things are set up, people look to justify that as being correct, as being just and correct in the world. If you have people saying, here's a thing that gives you what you want, which is for number to go up, this will justify it. So with Bitcoin, it was a bit of both because it started from the desire for this, for a system that works like this way. So they pulled in these ideas. And so these ideas took root there because... They seem to go with the material structure that the technology creates, if that makes sense. No, it makes sense. Thank you very much for that. So you'll see this where some obscure conspiracy theory book from 50 years before suddenly takes off Mm -hmm. in a given subculture because it feeds their preconceptions and they feel like, yes, this has led up to this moment. You know, the illusion that history goes in a progressing (laughs) line instead of being a weird drunkard's walk of everyone's on crack, you know, which is actually what happens. (laughs) A weird drunkard's walk of everybody on crack. (laughs) That's history. I I can imagine the pained faces of historians going, yes, but... You are full of analogies in this book, and one of my favorite analogies, just two of them, which is in chapter three, since we're going to keep moving on, is it's like, and you talked about 
Bitcoin's cryptography. It's like putting six inch thick steel vault walls on a cardboard box. And in the next analogy that you had in your book in chapter three was using an exchange is like keeping your money in a sock under somebody else's bed. I loved it. I love that line. I was very proud of that line. <laughs> it's, um, yeah, the security one, it's like people say, yes, but we need more proof of work for more security. But Bitcoin isn't just the cryptography, which does work and is secure, but it's a cryptographic system. It's not just the software and the blockchain. It's a whole system of people exchanging money, trying to trade Bitcoins, do things with them and so on. And you do have to look at the whole system. Nobody attacks a cryptographic system at its strongest point. They always attack at the weak bits around the edges. This is standard. Security people advise you, yeah, don't attack a crypto system. Don't attack the crypto. Attack everything around it. Social engineer people. Hack their systems. Hack their software. Sell them a um, wallet with a back door in it, which you put into it. Um, that sort of thing. And right. so this is why people... Nobody's going to break the blockchain, but they can and do scam each other, hack exchanges and so on. There's lots and lots and lots of weak points and crooks and thieves are indefinitely creative. And so you've got to actually watch the whole system. So people who say, yes, we've got to secure the system. No, no, that isn't part of the system. Well, yeah, it is. Right. I 100% agree. I love that line, keeping your money in a sock under, under somebody else's bed. And I never thought of it that way. But that's what you're doing with an exchange. You're giving them your money and hoping, wishing, promising there's no there's no repercussions to them. They, there's nobody regulating them. If they closed down, took your funds, and found themselves in the Cayman Islands, who is going to go after them? <laughs> we don't know. We don't know. Yeah, it's they're variably good as actual custodians of Bitcoins, but it's really hard to hold on to Bitcoins. Be your own bank is not someone any sensible person really wants because basically be your own bank means be your own information security officer. And this is a specialized job. This is the reason we outsource this stuff to banks. <laughs> right. <laughs> because so civilization is made up of people who do different jobs. It's built on the division of labor. No one can do all the jobs. I don't want to be my own bank. No one wants to be their own bank. Well, a few people do, but most people don't want to be their own bank. It's like not a thing that would be good for most people. Going on with this in exchanges, in chapter yep, yep. four, early Bitcoin, the rise to the first bubble. In this, you said, in real security trading, you can presume that the exchanges themselves are not going to mess around. However, I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt here that you wrote this before companies like Coinbase really started to follow regulations and started to really trying to do their best to protect the customer. Yeah, there's people who've been better actors than others. And like you have ones like Gemini, and this is amazing in the crypto space. I've never heard a complaint about Gemini exchange from anyone. The worst I've heard about them is that they know your customer procedures are really onerous. But their whole pitch, Gemini, Winklevoss's whole pitch is we will be the most regulated exchange that follows all the rules of proprietary because your serious money is safe with us. You know, their whole pitch is to serious money. That's fine. It'll make it'll make it all a bit more sensible and reasonable. And Coinbase want to be large and perceived as the right exchange. And if you're a mum and mums and dads who want to buy some crypto, you know, buy ten pounds worth of Ethereum and watch it go up and down and down. You know, it's but anyone can start a website with some good graphic design and say, I'm an exchange now. And right. they do. Right. And it sometimes doesn't work out so well. You can't right. tell if, if this organization is anything really. And it, it's not good. And also, I've since found out about other things like there's been a bit of trouble on the New York Stock Exchange where there were strongly credible allegations of front running by um, high frequency traders who happen to own a chunk of the exchange and stuff like that. So mm. mostly you aren't threatened by your exchange in normal security trading. In, in chapter five, how Bitcoin mining is centralized, you really focused on not only the centralization, but the enormous waste of energy. This is actually a big part where I disagree with you. But can you talk about the centralization a little bit more and the wasting of electricity? Well, you know how Bitcoin mining works. It's literally you guess numbers because a hash is not reversible. So you try to guess a number that will give you a low number as your hashed value of your data. That's how it works. And you try to guess numbers as fast as you can. And it's literally anti-efficient. Every time this people add more computing power, 
the system gets harder. So the more mining is done, the less efficient it is in terms of how much work it does per watt used. You'll see in the press describing Bitcoin mining, they do complex calculations. Well, they don't. A hash is a simple calculation. All the actual energy is spent literally trying to print lottery tickets, guessing a nonce number, applying (laughs) it, see if you win the Bitcoins. Whoops, no, let's try again. We're I think it's up to 36 sextillion lottery tickets per 10 minutes with one winner. (laughs) And I think it's actually a problem when you have a whole country worth of electricity being used to run the world's most inefficient payment network. My point of contention is, who cares? Who cares how much money, who cares how much electricity it uses? It turns out that quite a lot of people do. Um, At the moment, the people are saying, well, it's my money, my electricity, I'll spend it how I like, Mm -hmm. which is sort of like the situation now. Normal people, I find, who don't know about Bitcoin or whatever, they consistently get really angry when they find out they're using how much electricity for this? You know, it's perceived as a complete waste. You can argue, well, technically it's not a waste, but and make detailed arguments about this and Bitcoin advocates do this a lot, but I can tell you that's not convincing people and have to somehow put out something that really convinces people that Bitcoin is a good idea. You can say, but we need to do this so that Bitcoin is secured in these manners and it does this particular thing. And you have to have an answer to the objection, or you could not do that. Right. Bitcoin really does need to make its case like an argument that would win a politician over why Bitcoin mining is good, actually. Well, I, I don't think my, my listeners ever heard my two cents on this. And this has nothing to do with your book or with you or whatever. It just has to do yeah, sure. with, with Bitcoin. Wasting electricity, I, I just don't – I never never understood that argument because there's ways to have renewable ener- energy. We can have <laughs> we can have solar panels. There's there's solar places, you know, in in China with most of their minings. There these places are hooked up with the government, the local governments, and the, their mining facilities are next to dams. So they they have hydroelectric that they're using basically for free um, off of a river that's flowing down a waterfall. I, I think that there's these clean ways to use energy, and they're saying, well, so what's not a waste? Because you can't watch Netflix with it, run your air conditioner, um, text people, charge your iPhone. That's not a waste. And I think that in any society growing, humanity will grow. We will always have a demand for more energy. We will go from our K points of a seven society to a K1 society to a K2 civilization where we're going to have to, and, and we have a sun there that has so much energy and so much power that's being wasted daily that we could harness to basically move humanity forward. So I think that it's just really small thing when people say, oh, you're wasting electricity. Well, no, you have to use electricity. You have to keep using, and, and as more people are going to be born, the more things that we're going to start doing, the more tech we're going to oh, have, yeah. we're going to be using more electricity. Just get off of it. When they say wasting electricity, what they're really talking about is the carbon production. Now, a lot of mining in China does use hydro, but a lot of it does use coal. The Chinese mining situation, a lot of that hydro and coal as well was just overbuilt consumption. Miners don't tick a box saying, oh, I only want to use the solar now. They'll use literally whatever's cheapest. The way that mining works, it's a 24-7 load, and that totally optimizes for coal. As the uh, hydro dams get increasingly hooked up to the national grid in China, China is pushing them out. Mm-hmm. Um, this has been happening since late last year. It was literally wasted electricity for a long time, but now it increasingly isn't. All other technologies have a drive to more efficiency. Use Let's use less power. It'll be more efficient. Bitcoin mining is anti-efficient. Those are the arguments against that. So when they say wasting electricity, they're really talking about carbon production. And that is an externality that other people do worry about. It's a tiny one, but there's no upper limit on how much Bitcoin mining could use. I do agree with the carbon production. Yes. But I don't understand the the argument because we will always because nobody's arguing the carbon production when they when Apple sold a billion more cell phones this year and more billion more people are charging it. Nobody says, oh, the carbon. No. But Bitcoin is a talking point. It's ridiculous. That's the sort of way the arguments work. It anyway, <laughs> so with the money. <laughs> Moving on. Moving on. Chapter six. Who is Satoshi Nakamoto? You had a good case. Yeah, I had case. to have a chapter on that. You had to. You I had, had to. to you, you had a good case for um, Nick Zabo in there. And you didn't say that he couldn't be. Actually, I think you said that Nick Zabo is probably the best candidate. But you had a whole thing on Craig Wright. Talk about him. 
Well, basically, it was like, who isn't Satoshi? I don't think it really matters. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Who he is, and anyone who claims to know who Satoshi Nakamoto is, no one could put forward a Satoshi candidate. You have to think, yeah, what, what's your game here? I think it's really obvious that Craig Wright is is not Satoshi, was never Satoshi, and there's no evidence he even knew what a Bitcoin was before 2011. I think it's really obvious he had nothing to do with it, and I can't fathom why people take him seriously on this score. Now, I tried not to say explicitly, hey, this guy must be running some sort of scam because, you know, I want to be polite and let the book show not tell. But, um, yeah, but he made such a huge phenomenon of it that he was a story to definitely cover. I had to cover Dorian Nakamoto as well because that was on the front page of Newsweek, so people <laughs> would have heard about it. And people ask, hey, what about this Dorian guy? I don't think Nick Shabo is Satoshi because they write completely differently. Mm-hmm. Both have a very strong personality in their writing, and Nick Shabo's personality was not Satoshi's in any way. Hal Finney was an obvious candidate, but he said, look, why would I lie? I'm dying. I have tons of Bitcoin already. Why would I fib about this? You know, Which is was his argument when people put that to him. I don't think we'll ever know who Satoshi was. I don't think anything clear will ever come out. I'm going to move past Chapter 7 and Chapter 8. Um, but oh, I... but Chapter 8 is the great one, because oh. Chapter 8 is where I talk about how I think that Bitfinex losing their banking was what started the 2017 bubble. Well, please, then continue. Chapter 8, the, the, the name of the chapter is Trading Bitcoins in 2017, the second crypto bubble. Yeah, that was up in the launch of the uh, crypto bubble. Chapter 7 was about the merchant case. Chapter 8 is about the trading case. So Bitfinex got hacked in August 2016. They were mm. desperately trying to work out how to recover stuff. By April 27th, they went, finally, we made enough money back with the rising price that we can make our customers whole. So that was excellent. And unfortunately, they'd also lost their US dollar banking. So I think what kicked the bubble off, one, in all the price indexes, Bitfinex was in there, particularly the Coindesk one, which is the number that the mainstream press tend to follow. Mm -hmm. So two, I think that I have called that number a marketing lie because you cannot price Bitcoin down to it's... $6,423.22 when actually it's like maybe you could say $6,400 plus or minus $200 depending which exchange you go to because saying you can price Bitcoin down to the cent across exchanges is an attempt to make it look much more stable and managed and regulated than it actually is. Agreed. And that's really annoying. So anyway, Bitfinex, they 
suddenly didn't have US dollar banking, but people wanted to get their stuff out, you know, and trade it. So suddenly you had US dollars, which were basically USD tokens on Bitfinex. And it came out that what they'd actually done was give their, make their users whole with tethers. Mm-hmm. Um, Phil Potter announced this. He was talking about this on, I think it was a Whirlpool interview in early April 2017. And people wanted to get their bitcoins out or their money out or whatever and the only thing what can you do with your money trapped on bitfinex you could use it to buy bitcoins and that drove the price up (laughs) and this drove the price up there which drove up the numbers which attracted attention got more buyers in Mm -hmm. after a few weeks it was attracting mainstream press attention because number go up is always an interesting story and then by may it was starting to really the market was getting enthusiastic about enthusiasm and that's a bubble. Mm-hmm. And you could tell, is it a bubble? Are we in a bubble? No, it's definitely not a bubble, despite having being circular and made of soap. You know, it's <laughs> so I think that's how the bubble started. And I actually spoke to Phil Potter for the book. I didn't use any of his quotes, but I got from him the story of how the hack went from their perspective. And so that the bit about bit describing the bit for next hacks is basically from Phil. And mm-hmm. We were chatting in an interview. I put my theory to him. And went, he said, yeah, that sounds quite plausible. He pointed out, at the moment, we're actually – the price is lower on Bitfinex because prices do what prices do. But, uh, you know, all exchanges trade separately from each other. It's it, interesting. But if there's a bit of pent-up enthusiasm in the world, then people go, I can get into this. You know, it might be a lottery ticket. Who knows? I might get rich and right. buy magic and not working. And that's why people bought that 20,000 Bitcoin. <laughs> <laughs> and they're still holding Absolutely. it. Hopefully, someone paid nineteen thousand nine hundred for it. Someone did. Exactly. Exactly. So, Do you think that the six thousand four hundred dollar price right now is a fair price? I think that the Bitcoin price is so stupendously and obviously manipulated that I have no idea what a Bitcoin would cost and what fair means in this context. Because you don't get Bart Simpson formations on charts that aren't being hugely manipulated by someone Hmm. barring external action or evidence i really hate how the press talk about the bitcoin price as if this is a rational market that responds to market signals because it's nothing of the sort it is a huge thumb on the scale and we don't have smoking gun evidence and i'm amazed we don't but the really good statistical work showing that it's absolutely impossible that tethers weren't used to pump the bitcoin price whenever it started flagging Bitcoin has cured me of any idea of the efficient market hypothesis because it turns out that buyers are nuts and go off on crazed expeditions. And Maybe you can have a sort of rational market if you have enough people who are nuts, but that's the material you're building from. (laughs) Cryptos are always been a thinly traded market, right? Even the biggest one, Bitcoin, the number of people interested in it on the grand scale of things is pretty negligible. Mm -hmm. So the price, that's hence why we have the huge volatility. Is it just Bitcoin or but what about altcoins? What is your opinion on altcoins, which is chapter nine? Well, Bitcoin is the biggest one and altcoins are even worse for this. I mean, the drive to let's make our own magical internet money and get rich for free is a strong one in the human heart. So um, they proceeded to do exactly that. And I'm not sure that any of this is, I mean, the market treats these as all varieties of one sort of thing, you know. You can say, oh, but Bitcoin and Ethereum, it's apples and oranges, but it's not an apple market. It's a fruit market, you know, to stretch an analogy. The market treats these as one type of object called crypto, which is now basically a finance jargon term. So coins like Bitcoin or Ethereum or centralized coins like Ripple, XRP, or even ICO tokens, they're all treated as the same sort of object, even though they're very different underneath. It's it's one great big puddle of stuff that people trade. The trading market treats them as interchangeable, the same sort of thing. The consumer payment market for them treats them as interchangeable. There is a small payment use case for cryptos, but people who want to transmit money where they can't get conventional currency in and out easily, they would used to use Bitcoin. Now they use Ethereum a lot particularly when the fees were going through the roof on Bitcoin. The darknet markets switched away from Bitcoin when the transactions were clogged to Monero because it also offered anonymity guarantees. They use whichever one does the job, you know. They have a job to do. Does this do the job? Do the other things do the job? Yeah, pretty much. They're the same sort of thing for our purposes, Mm -hmm. you know. 
is Bitcoin money? Well, you know, the English word money has a lot of shades of meaning. Does it? So I would say, does it fulfill them? Yeah, sure, it does in a lot of ways. Some it doesn't. Sometimes it's good money. Sometimes it's not very good money. It depends what for. Are there any altcoins that you think are actually doing a good job that are have really committed good people trying to do something better with this technology? Well, the obvious one's Ethereum. I mean, they're doing a, a technically interesting thing. As I said, where Bitcoin is like an Excel spreadsheet, Ethereum, an Excel spreadsheet with macros. Their whole thing is um, running programs on the, on the blockchain. So I don't know how useful it is. And the main use, you know, Nick Sharbo spent 20 years working on the theory of smart contracts. And it turned out the number one use case for smart contracts is writing an ICO token. So... It's definitely an interesting project technically, and they're quite sincere technically. They're notably less ideological than the foundations of Bitcoin. There's a bit of that. I mean, Vitalik Buterin's parents were ANCAPs as well, which I only found out about recently. Russian immigrants who had been burnt by Soviet communism and so went 100% the other way, uh, which is understandable in the circumstances. So he understands that stuff deeply, but... Ethereum's ideology is more, let's make a technology and get rich, you know, which is a more comprehensible thing to ordinary people, because a lot of people do that one. It's definitely interesting phenomena to watch and how they cope with the fact that their interesting computer science experiment is now a really big business, and they have to get stuff right, you know, like the Casper proof of stake thing, where um, a lot of coins have done proof of stake to some extent, and it always ended up being hugely centralized. Ethereum has billions of dollars of notional value tied up in it. So they know they have to get this one right and they're taking it seriously. And they realize they have to do literally new computer science to make this work. And it's been six months away for years. They're working seriously on it, but I'll believe they can pull the trick off when they've done it. History doesn't repeat itself, but it sure does rhyme. And you're going to get the rhymes with the scams. You're going to get rhymes with the people disappearing with money invested in ICOs or fake startups or people that are just incompetent. But also with history, you see a lot of technological success. Do you think that the ICOs, do you think that this altcoin phenomenon, this blockchain phenomenon could be an ultimate success in the next 20 years? I won't say that it won't be, but I would like to see it happen before I'll credit it. The trouble with the whole cryptocurrency and blockchain space is that promises are free, but execution turns out to be a bit harder. The hype to production system ratio is through the roof. And the press is no help. Even the relatively quality publications like Coindesk, they've never seen a story with the word crypto on it they don't like. If you go back through the archives, you see a lot of stories on stuff where someone promises an exciting new thing that will totally revolutionize everything, and they detail all their plans for paragraphs, and three months or six months later, it disappears, and yeah, nothing happened. There's a lot of promises, and I, I strongly advise people not to take any promise or future-looking thing in crypto really seriously until it actually happens in front of you, because you know, if, if something revolutionary happens, you'll know about it. You'll find out may want to squirrel away 10 quid of bitcoins or 10 quid of ethereum just in case it goes through the roof again but you know if you wanted to if you think this will be a good thing to put into you want to take a take a flutter on it take a punt chapter 10 smart contracts stupid humans the human aspect you have a lot of basically you itemize different problems with smart contracts i have i think maybe three or four episodes dedicated to smart contracts. I am not a fan of smart contracts. What do you think of smart contracts? I think the whole idea is misconceived. Now, Nick Sharbo's threat model, he's an ardently anarcho-capitalist, right? So his threat model is that if your agreement with someone else, some human, probably a government, might be a bank or a someone else who wants to break in will mess up your agreement with someone else. His solution to this is to make a computer program that cannot be altered. So that was hypothetical for decades, right? He came up with this idea in 94 and formalized a bit more in 96 and talked about it in intervening years. He went off and got a degree in law just so he would know what he was talking about when he's talking about laws and contracts and stuff. (laughs) So I don't agree with him in a lot, but I definitely respect Shavo. He's great. Mm-hmm. Um, he's well worth taking very seriously. Then the blockchain came along and people went, oh, we have an immutable thing because it's 
it's really hard to alter the Bitcoin blockchain. Let's assume it's immutable. It might as well be. So, and the Ethereum chain isn't really much more breakable either um, until smart contracts go badly wrong, but we'll get to that one. The trouble is that I think they're misconceived because we're talking about a computer program and people are really bad at programming. Ask programmers. They'll go, what? No, programming is hard and it doesn't make sense and people can't think like that because no one has written a computer program without bugs and mm-hmm. then you're going to make these things unalterable. Mm-hmm. It's This leads to bad software engineering. You have to program like NASA programming a spacecraft. You know They cannot fix bugs. And then they'll discover, whoops, someone used feet instead of meters and they did <laughs> And they didn't do that. So things go wrong. And also, a smart contract exists in a society to do things between people who live in the society. And laws change. Yep. And people can get upset at you. And they may make a law against your specific smart contract if it's bad enough. Mm-hmm. You know, this happens all the time. You know, and most people aren't anarcho-capitalists. It turns out that People like living in a society that has rules and regulations and laws and th- ways things are done, and they, they're quite fond of that. You want to argue particular points like, I don't like being told either, you know, but um, I do benefit hugely from being part of the system. Um, it's a very tricky one. There's also the problem of getting information into your smart contract. Unless you're talking strictly about things happening on the blockchain, how do you interface the real world? Again, that's a real weak point. You know, that's a weak point of your entire system, and the cryptography is just one part of that. Right. And the big problem, as we discovered with the DAO, one, they ticked off literally every objection that people had to smart contracts. They're not contracts. They're not very smart. Software you can't update is a bad idea. But then they came up with a whole new objection no one had thought of yet, which is your smart contract system will be broken as soon as the big boys lose enough money. Mm -hmm. That was amazing and hilarious and terrible. Now, people more or less put up with it, although Ethereum Classic did split off. But it was like, no, you're part of society. And... It uh, it came out later. I was t- I've been told this in conference talks, so I don't think it's a secret that um, they were seriously worried after the DAO was hacked that they basically run an unlicensed securities offering and they were going to get busted big time. So they basically tried to make good and give everyone's money back. And then a year later, the SEC put forward its opinion on ICOs and they used the DAO as their worked example, mm-hmm. saying, yeah, you guys did this illegal, this illegal, this illegal, this, 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 but you tried to make good and give everyone's money back, so this time we're not going to penalize you, but don't do it again. Right. And that was the big warning to everyone that the regulators had finally shown up because sometimes it turns out that unregulated doesn't mean unregulatable. It just means the regulators haven't shown up yet. 2017, 2018, they're really showing up. David, I want to say that I really enjoyed reading your book. There's a lot of good information in there. We touched on the chapters. We just touched on them. So whoever's out there who wants a good critical look at Bitcoin, the blockchain, the crypto space, the market, a little bit of history lesson as well, pick up the book, read through the chapters, and you're going to get a lot of information that isn't just a bunch of shillers out there telling you Bitcoin's the next big thing. This is very a critical look. David, thank you for, for writing this book. Is there anything else you want to summarize about this book before we move into general questions? I have no position in any cryptocurrency or crypto asset or blockchain company or whatsoever. I have no financial interest in any of this stuff. Basically, I'm doing this as a journalist. I now have a news site of the same name, Attack of the 50-Foot Blockchain, which has book excerpts on it. But I also post every couple of days, post a lot of news, think pieces, discussion of current events. Maybe one day I'll digest this down into another book. I'd better get on with it. <laughs> and, um, and of course, I'm on Twitter as well. I'm on, I spend only about 16 hours a day on Twitter. So, <laughs> yeah, general questions, please. What do you think of the crypto space these days? What do you think of the people? I was actually surprised because I'd been dealing with the worst of Bitcoin is the way I'd put it. There's a lot of people in Bitcoin who are a bit too overenthusiastic, particularly on social media. They were the sort of people I was writing 400 footnotes against, saying, no, I can prove this. Then I got to actually meet crypto people and talk to them a lot. And it turns out most of them are like normal and fine. 
and they're more optimistic about the stuff, but they're basically reality based. And mm. that was that was quite nice to see, you know. Oh, good. Horrible people are just the worst of them. Excellent. The cultist people are really a problem, but they're thankfully a minority. Just a very noisy one. Who are some of the cult people? I, I don't know if I don't know the difference between the cult people and the not cult people. When you say something on Twitter that might not be good news for Bitcoin, and your mentions fill with people repeating points and posting abuse, that sort of thing. Got it. They're an eternal phenomenon, but I hit the mute button a whole lot, you know. Is there anybody you respect in the crypto space? Oh, quite a few. Of course, I talk to a lot of other writers and journalists in the space, many of whom are quite pro-crypto, but, you know, are reality-based and doing good stuff. I've been particularly impressed by The Block lately, that the news site that's popped up. They seem to be doing a lot of interesting and good work and taking it seriously, which is nice. Breaker is an interesting phenomenon. That singular DTV who got a whole section in the book because their ICO scheme was so amazingly nuts. But they've got their ICO winnings, and one of the things they're spending them on is a magazine or a crypto news site, which is working on a professional level. So that's interesting. Right on. I find this area totally fascinating. Oh, me too. And I expect this to be around for years, right? I think the future for cryptocurrencies is that it will become increasingly regulated and normalized. Mm -hmm. That the regulators have shown up. SEC is on the case with ICOs. They're leading the world in regulation of ICOs. People want regulation of this because they want to know where they stand and how they can do this sort of thing. Will the SEC bust us if we own an ICO? And my answer to that is no, not if you're an honest business. Right, exactly. Because there's a lot of crooks, but there's a lot of honest people who just want to get funding to for their startup. And maybe an ICO is the right thing. Maybe it isn't. Most ICOs are terrible. And one day I'll see one that I think is actually really good and a good idea. I haven't yet. But there's a lot of people trying really hard. And there should be some way to make this work. Crypto assets, I think they will be more regulated and people will get a handle on this sort of stuff. I think that, speaking technically, they are junk quality assets. They're not backed by anything. They're volatile as hell. They have a price because people will pay for them. And mm. that's the only reason. So I don't think that these should be marketed to retail investors at all. You shouldn't stop people from buying them, but they should not be marketed to them. We shouldn't be seeing ads on the London Underground for cryptocurrency exchanges. I think that's actually unethical mis-selling, financially speaking. This is perfect. Um, perfect segue into the next question. Crypto 101 is positioned for the new person getting in the crypto space. We are the 101 first stop. For people, if this was the first interview that someone was listening to you and they're new to the space, what would you tell them? I would tell them the market Turn around is and run hugely, away. <laughs> <laughs> I would say, well, first, don't. Two, treat it as gambling, not as investment, because at your level it is. You can totally make money and you can totally lose your shirt. It's a zero-sum trading economy. No dollars go out that didn't go in of conventional currency, right? It's zero-sum trading. It's absolutely cutthroat. You cannot trust the platforms you trade on in most cases. There's a lot of manipulation. Even on the relatively good ones like Coinbase, there's a lot of manipulation. The CFTC, Commodities Futures Trading Commission, it's more or less, in US law, cryptocurrencies are more or less treated as commodities, you know, a fungible thing that you can trade units of. So... They've decided it's in their jurisdiction, and they are doing criminal investigation and manipulations. That will probably take months or years, but I expect them to come out with a large fist of God coming down on the space, and that'll be good. This is why I think regulation will increase. At the moment, it's still a very cutthroat. There's a lot of manipulation. Beware. If you get a hot tip about an altcoin, it's probably people shilling it. It's terrible. The whole space is so spammy and so full of people blatantly pumping coins. They don't just take notes on a criminal conspiracy. They make little videos to advertise it. it it's incredible. <laughs> I saw a video for, and this is how you join our coin pumping ring. And what? <laughs> I'm amazed that the dumb things people put on the record, you know, it's like as if buying drugs on Bitcoin blockchain wasn't a really dumb thing to do. I, I'm not worried about the drug aspect. I think the war on drugs is, was very bad public policy and basically a bit dumb. Mm -hmm. But it is actually illegal and that is a, a fact you have to deal with. And it turns out that people are still getting busted for stuff they did on Silk Road in 2011, you know? 
So <laughs> don't do that. It's not smart. Be super, super cautious. This is a tank full of sharks and you look tasty. Trade carefully. Right on. I think that's good advice. And before I ask this last question, David, I want to say thank you for coming on the show. and Thank you. And thank you for writing a book that is the antagonist of Bitcoin. Because in cryptocurrency, on crypto Twitter, and in the space, as being a podcaster in the space, we are all shilling Bitcoin. We are all talking to people who love Bitcoin. Everybody on the show is Bitcoin, 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 blockchain, starting up companies. It's really good and it's refreshing to have the other side come on. Cool. So what was your last question? My last, I'm very happy that you are a music journalist because my last question is, what three songs would you like to put on the Crypto 101 Spotify playlist? Ooh. I didn't actually think of answers to this one. <laughs> Let's see. Nobody does. I've been I've been spending my time lately playing a favorite Spotify list, which is basically one of the daily mixes. It turns out to be a bunch of industrial and future pop. So let's say a pop figure of Berserk, Kathy's song, VNV Nation remix, Bird of Prey by Destroyed, and I'm trying to remember the name of the third one, which I really have been listening to a whole lot. Yeah, Race of the Rats by Solar Haze. Solar Fake, sorry. Right on. Perfect. David, thank you very much for coming on the show, and you have a great day. And I can't wait to talk to you again on your second book. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Crypto 101. David, thank you very much for coming on the show, and it was a pleasure. I can't wait to have you back on for your next book. If you want my personal opinions of what was said during this episode, please go to our YouTube channel, Crypto 101 with Matthew Aaron, where a video will be posted two to three days after this episode. Like always, ApogeeCrypto.com, the best place for your real-time prices, CryptoNews.com for your news, and thank you very much to Helen for editing this episode. We'll see you in future episodes of Crypto 101. This is Matthew Aaron. Have a great day. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.